When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for this episode of Be Real is brought to you by Lucasfilm presenting Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Directed by J.J. Abrams, starring Adam Driver, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, and Oscar Isaac. Original score by John Williams. Academy eligible. Now playing everywhere. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here to talk today and hop to the genre of the Tom Ripley movies, the Tom Ripley-verse, which, of course, we're getting into because it is the 20th anniversary of the most seen of the movies in the Ripley-verse, The Talented Mr. Ripley, 1999, starring Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, directed by Anthony Minghella. Noah, what else are we going to talk about on this category today? Um, Well, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that... Ripley's Game existed, starring John Malkovich, but I'd never seen it. And one can assume from the title that's somehow related. Turns out it is. Uh, It's it's a full-blown Tom Ripley movie. Of course, I watched this one second and then found out not only is it a Tom Ripley movie, it's more or less a remake of 1977's The American Friend. That's right. Which is also based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, which I probably should have mentioned her name two minutes ago. But yeah, these are all her books. Well, how would you place her in the in the twentieth century canon publishing person that you are? Upmarket international thriller writer. Right. She's an American author who really loves to set things in the sunnier coastal parts of Europe. I had assumed she was British. Right. I think that makes sense. And then you like look at all these a lot of these movies are First of all, lots of them, some of them are not English. The first adaptation was 1960's Purple Noon, which I believe is all in French. Um, and then Ripley's Game, I think, did not get American, it didn't get big American distro if it got any. And there's that like Barry Pepper Ripley's Underground, which simply wasn't released in the US. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so yeah, Tom Ripley is a famous, what, psychopath. What's the, is that is that fair medical diagnosis? Where's my DSM? That's fair. He doesn't to say. have what we'd call people feelings. Yeah. Well, he, he maybe he does. Yeah, There's a couple ones. of moments where he has envy and horny. He does have envy and horny. Yeah. He is a living thing. Right. He lacks certain people feelings. Yeah, empathy. Yes. For sure. That's true. That's true. Can we also say, though, before we get too far into it, yeah, man. Patricia Highsmith also 
wrote like a pretty seminal queer novel, Price of Salt, which was not a thriller and adapted into um, Carol a couple years ago. It's kind of a fascinating story because it was published in the 50s under a pseudonym, right? And then it was yeah. republished under her actual name because it would have been so taboo at the time. Yeah. But like widely known as one of the first like happy ending like gay novels. Like up until that point, like being gay was sort of like you died at the end. Yeah. Highsmith has uh, like an interesting relationship with uh, Hollywood in general because you have Strangers on a Train is a very famous one that was adapted by Hitchcock. I think that's that was a great the first movie. film adaptation. Um, but then you still kind of see her work sort of peter out into the Sony Picture Classics thing. I don't actually know if Sony Picture Classic released Two Faces of January, that uh, Vigo Dunst Oscar Isaac movie. I kind of dug that movie. I think it's that on Netflix. A, that movie's all right. But yeah, that it's, movie is it, all right. It is a lot of Americans with questionable consciences, uh, you know, hiding bodies under beautiful European oceans and ruins and things. Yeah. The things that seem to connect them all are like people in transit with like flexible morals. A lot of them are, of course, from the 50s and 60s. There's a lot of repression, uh, you know, coming out in transgressive sexual ways. And it's interesting, too, how the adaptations in what time period they choose to set them in is also sort of a fun reflection on, like, what does it mean to be on a train in X year? Sure. Absolutely. That's Like, what does it mean to be in, in an airport, like, in 1977? Right. Yeah. And, like, Vim Vendors clearly uses space in a different way than Anthony Mangella uses space in terms oh, of the directors sure. we're talking about today. Yeah. Should we start with Talented Mr. Ripley? Let's get to it. All right. You had seen this movie before, yes? Yes. Had you seen this movie? I had, yes. Um, as we said, it's 20. Anthony Minghella, if you don't know his work, films, epic films like English Patient and Cold Mountain. Uh, he passed away in the, in the aughts. Uh, I think his last credit was, he got a, like a posthumous Oscar for producing The Reader, which is a movie I do not like. Um... But this is Talented Mr. Ripley is the first Ripley novel, came out in 1955. It is the first of Highsmith's five novels that touch on Tom Ripley. And he is quite young in this movie, early 20s. And it basically opens with him playing the piano at a sort of tawny recital space. It all started with a jacket. Exactly. <laughs> He's borrowed somebody's Princeton jacket, and then James Rebhorn, who owns, what, a shipping conglomerate, is like, you're a Princeton man, huh? My son's a Princeton man, and I hate him. He's in Europe spending my fortune. Uh, I just met you, but it could be great if you went and tried to convince him to come home. And even saying this, one of the things I want to talk about now is that none of the plots of these movies or stories are believable in like a to b plot terms like even as i say that it's like james rebhorn's like meets a guy and says go bring home my son because you're princeton what like what is that but it's a great excuse to send a lot of characters pinging off each other dickie greenley it's tom tom ripley tom ripley we were at princeton together did we know each other sorry what is it Ripley. How do you do? Just be for a little while. No, I like him. Marge, you like everybody. Marge, you like everybody. 
You uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes. And his father picks up the tab. What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies, forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. What? They're also kind of funny nods at how this different like class structure interacts with like the so we're dealing with the very wealthy and like the sort of lower middle class and how they sort of interact yeah so tom ripley yeah just like this picking up a gig like playing piano at something and then gets pulled into this drama of this like shipping magnate and how he doesn't know how to connect like with his you know, erstwhile son. Yeah. Talking about Dickie Greenleaf is the son. Dickie Greenleaf. And that's such a perfect name, I think, not only for the character that Jude Law ultimately plays, but also for the situation. Like, of course you're going to Spain to track down Dickie Greenleaf. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Uh, When Tom Ripley arrives there, I think it is Italy, by the way. Um, Oh, it's Italy. I'm sorry. Of course it is. All the places blend together. Is it Hamburg? Do they ever go to Hamburg in this? In the next one, they will. Um, And Dickie has a a girlfriend who may become his fiancée named Marge, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, Tom, on the way over, meets another sort of undercover daughter of a famous American, probably robber baron family, uh, Meredith, who's Meredith Logue, who's played by a very young Kate Blanchett. Uh, She's great in this. And of course, Philip, we got to talk Philip Seymour Hoffman. The cast in this is stupendous. Freddie Miles. <laughs> oh my God. What a piece of shit he is. Um, uh, oh, and I think a really undersung Jack Davenport as Peter Smith Kingsley. He's also like the. also good. Yeah, he, you'll remember him from the Pirates of the Caribbean. He's like the sort of stick-up-his-ass British commander. You're thinking of Commodore Norrington. Com- of course he's called <laughs> Commodore Norrington. Names, he continues to play funny? Commodore Norrington in this film, and it's That's... pretty great. You really feel for the old Commodore in this one. Yeah. Uh, at least I did. Philip Baker S- Hall also makes an incredible <laughs> cameo in this movie. Yeah, basically he was like invited to Europe. Like, would you like to, we'll fly you over here. You can have a glass of orange juice and you can yell at Tom that you don't much care for bullshit. <laughs> he does not care for bullshit. He's just reprising his role as like the uh, the, the bookman from mm. Seinfeld. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, the plot of this movie, we'll get into it, but it's 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 definitely more a movie about the characters. They are drawn together. Uh, you know, Tom immediately shows that he has skills for impersonation. That he had when he's alone, he has these interesting, flexible moments of identity. It becomes very clear soon enough that he's sexually attracted to Dickie. Um, that he will use these people to do something. You don't quite know what it is. We're going to talk about, we're recording our year-end podcast tomorrow, and maybe this is just because I have Parasite Brain. This movie reminded me a lot of Parasite, or I certainly thought about them a lot. Yeah, All- it's at its heart like a fun, like heisty kind of movie, and I think that's what makes it good. And I think what takes it either to the next level or ultimately ruins it is the fact that it shifts up into something totally beyond that. That's a lot like Parasite, though. 
it's a class yeah, yeah. con. No, that no, is no really I think f- Parasite does that masterfully. Really um, fun. Um, yeah, I was even thinking about the. It has this thing in common with Parasite where, like, you don't. You're just meeting this guy. You have no idea what he was doing before. Presumably, if he's willing to do these things now, he's done something like it before. And so you see him give the jacket back to the guy in the car who couldn't play the piano. He's got a broken arm or something. And you can't help but wonder, what happened to that guy's arm? I bet it wasn't totally above board. In the same way when the Kim, when the Kim family folds those pizza boxes and the son's like, hey... I know that your pizza delivery guy's fucking up and he's not showing up to work. You should give me that job. It's like, huh, how does he know that the pizza guy's not showing up to work? There's just these tiny right. implications on the edges of the story. Yeah. Time's just a flat circle, man. Yeah. Okay. Where should we jump in? What's our access point? I think this movie hangs in both the exotic locales and the performances. Sure. Absolutely. Because it's a little long like you said before because it doesn't really have a coherent like pl- like plot it's a little meandering definitely but i think the episodic nature of it is what makes it so cool yeah i assume we're in spoiler territory the whole time for this 20 year old movie sure i did not remember that Dickie Greenleaf is dead by the one hour mark. Less than half the movie has gone by. I thought Dickie died like almost near the climax. I, I had also remembered the murder of Dickie being like the climax of the movie. But really the climax of the movie is the death of Commander Norrington. Right. <laughs> Commodore, I beg you. Sorry, Commodore remember Norrington. remember his precise stripes, sir. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, should we talk Matt Damon? Oh my god! I think this is like the Matt Damon performance. It's really good. Tell me why you think that. Because Matt Damon's like he'll shift as he gets older into this like disingenuous kind of like showing up in the at the end of Interstellar kind of way. Yeah, and I think he really sets the the table here for showing that he is more depth than simply uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, I think about a lot of his performances that are fine to mediocre, and a lot of the mediocrity comes from the fact that he's clearly a very intelligent person. Yeah. So when he goes for simple Hollywood sentiment sometimes, it feels very false. And when a movie like that conflates his sense of sentiment with something that is false, like Interstellar or like Talented Mr. Ripley or like The Departed, in all three in which he's great, right. he works really well. I'm going to throw out a hot take that has nothing to do with this movie is that I don't think he ever really succeeds for me in a action movie, Jason Bourne, Green Zone sort of way. Elysium, like all these things that require him to be in like fighting sequences. I think he's better in this sort of like violence in him, but like never like truly expressed. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, there's some really great choices that he makes in this movie. Uh, one of which I love is just how many different interactions does he have with people where the person like asks him a question he can't answer, uh, like "Do you know how to make a martini or whatnot?" and he just says nothing and waits for them to answer their own question. He stews in discomfort in such a wonderful get out of jail free kind of way. He's also really good at like 
putting a certain spin on saying the exact truth that people like don't think he's being serious. So yeah. he's never really lying. Like there's that great scene early on where Jude Law's like, what are you actually doing here, Tom Ripley? Uh-huh. And he like openly admits through this uncanny impersonation of James Rebhorn that he's there to like bring him back at the behest of his father. Right. And something about narking out his dad like builds a trust with Dickie Greenleaf. This brings up a point I want to talk about that makes Tom Ripley so compelling. And I was trying to think of other characters we liked that it could apply to. It definitely applies to Patrick Bateman. It definitely does not apply to any number of procedurals that are just like, wouldn't it be cool if our central character was like a moral sociopath? One of the things that makes Ripley so great is that every part of him is constructed naturally from flaws in the real world the only reason he can get away with any of this is because for some reason his dad trusts a stranger more than he trusts his own son because dickie trusts a stranger more than he trusts his fiance and all of these like weird kind of part of class and gender relations at the time he just exploits them and like fills the gaps it makes it feel pretty deep Yeah, absolutely. This movie has some nice nuance in, you know, his his struggle too. Like, is it somewhat admirable that this like young man is struggling to like fit into this upper crust society? And it almost sort of dupes you then when violence does make an appearance that it's like, oh man, like I was rooting for Matt Damon, you know, to like con these people parasite style, but I guess similarly, uh, it's like, oh, man, what was I rooting yeah. for? Yeah. He's very covetous, though. He does want some things. I think he he definitely wants to fuck Dickie. He definitely wants to fuck Dickie. Which is interesting because we should give some context. Highsmith herself um, has said that the Tom Ripley character is not gay that he has sort of tendencies, that there are scenes in the books where he is like impotent with women or expresses an attraction to the physique or the look of men. But I feel like the read on this movie is fairly clear that he, this character is quite attracted to men. There's a few scenes, I think like specifically the one where he's kind of peeping on the sailboat and Gwyneth Paltrow, who's the sexual partner of Jude Law in the sequence that Matt Damon's Tom Ripley's witnessing is really like not even in the scene. You see right. like kind of her foot and then the foot like kind of goes out of frame. Whereas like the focal point for Tom Ripley is like Jude Law's backside. For sure. For sure. Um, didn't you have a moment in this movie though, where like you saw how beautiful Jude Law was and you're like, that guy's too hot to do anything but be killed by it or I have so much respect for Jude Law, both as an actor and as a a man whose hair is balding in a specific pattern where there's like a little tuft Very at the specific. front. Because I feel like I have a similar sort of baldness happening with oh, me. You do so, have a tuft, don't you? Yeah, you want to, we're looking at it. I'll show it to you. See, I have like the tuft up front, but then it I like kind of... I know about your tuft. Yeah, but then it kind of loosens up towards the towards the top ridge here. And I feel like if I can look like Jude Law with this hair, that's it's great. That's a fant. I'm I'm glad you find comfort in that. Uh, I feel represented on screen. You're only. <laughs> I think you're just 
one cut below in terms of cheeks and chin. But you're... oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I'm playing more the facial hair game when it comes to like the center yeah. of my face. You got it. You know you. Um, but yeah, he's he is so hot in this movie. Oh, it's for sure, unbelievable. <laughs> I'm glad we're at an age where we can just say that because it feels good. I mean, yeah, I said it to myself the first time I saw this movie. There's just no one around. Um, I think I had a little bit more darkness around it when I first felt the Jude Law feeling. I also feel, uh, you ever seen Enemy at the Gates? It's not a terribly sexy movie, but he's like pretty hot in it, especially in that Rachel Weisz scene. Oh, he's the sniper, and they like have sex in a Russian gunny sack or something. They're like in a room with like a hundred other people like sleeping before the big battle, and they're just like humping very quietly. It's very intense. That's what you... <laughs> It's what you. If I if Stalin Battle of Stalingrad was tomorrow, I would dream of doing the same. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but he really carries the first half. It's kind of a shame when he dies. Can we say yes. that? Is that the point you're going to make? Well, yeah, because also he is the he is a very fitting partner for Tom. He brings it out of Tom, right? Like Tom trying to make sense and realizing that he as a person makes no sense is very connected to the simpler, more culturally accepted for whatever reason, lies that Dickie tells. I do think that Philip Seymour Hoffman, PSH does pick up the football a little bit. Oh yeah. Like that's a really good scene where they're in the apartment where he's trying to make him believe that like Dickie just left. Sleaze recognize Sleaze on that one. It is. It is kind of like they are facing off to see who can be more like whatever, using the weapons at their disposal, none of which are physical until well. they are. <laughs> <laughs> until the statue caves his skull in. Right. Um, yeah, PSH is great in this movie. The and he, It's also of the two of the three murders he commits are of people who play with him. And he doesn't want to be played with back. Um, no, you have it does that, turn like, him on to be played with, but ultimately, uh, much like a, a Black Widow spider, just like tears apart his his sure. mate. How's the peeping, Tommy? How's um, the, <laughs> the peeping, Tommy? Oh, that was good. I only realized halfway through that bit that it was a bit. Let's talk about how Mangella shoots the spaces in this one. Oh my god you know who will be definitely influenced by this movie is fucking angelina and brad in by the sea <laughs> that's true and yet i thought about by the sea as <sighs> oppositional to this in some bad ways because a lot of these like american travel logs in around the Mediterranean have this way of kind of, they're almost afraid for the Americans to interact with the space. And Mingela has this great way of being like underneath this, you know, gorgeous sand swept sun drenched playground are very visceral, ugly things. And I think about even the way he films Jude law being clubbed over the head with the oar, where he turns around and for a second, his face is normal. And then it just starts pouring blood He's got a great sense of like when to muck up the beauty. Yeah, because it's so stark in its contrast to what is otherwise like a totally beautiful, very like. It also reminded me of the visual aesthetic of uh, Call Me By Your Name. Right. Yeah. It has that just like beautiful, just like moneyed, but also sort of like 
beaten up properties. And like, there's nothing that I love more than that. I also just love some of the visual choices that really, he does a great job of inflecting this story. Really kind of like makes it his own um, in terms of taking those reaches, like just being like, you know what? I actually am going to come out and say that Tom Ripley is attracted to Dickie. And in the same, and then also inflecting that in the scene where he leaves, he so sullenly leaves Dickie and Freddie in the, in the uh, record booth. And he's just like out on his own. The That's very a great next, scene. the very next two things he sees are, uh, pair of men openly doing pda on a on a cafe table and then he takes there's one more cut and then you get a pair of nuns walking down the the stairs so it's just like ah what i might like to be and ah all the repression that i am right here that's interesting good uh good pickup chance thanks man so how does it go for you once it turns into this weird swirl of Ripley trying to basically frame himself <laughs> for murder and then backing off that and then impersonating Dickie when the plot gets weird and circular. Are you okay with that? I think I'm okay with that in the sense that I feel like this movie ultimately is very dressed up, very like Oscar Beatty TNT material ultimately. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, it's a compelling story that goes on forever, and there's not a whole lot of, like, sex or gore in it. You know, it's very Shawshank Redemption-y in that way, Mm. where it's just sort of long and good, but, like, never maybe great. I But I do think Damon is so good throughout, though. I love how he, like, continues to try to play up the dopey when he thinks he's getting away with it. And when Peter and Marge come to Rome and she knows it's him and he meets her at the train station and he gives her that big fat hello Marge and she like won't shake his hand because he fucking murdered her fiance and she definitely knows yep great piece of acting from both of them yeah this movie just has so much great subtext and that's what really wins for me while being very watchable on that movie star level even down to the I love reading it through the music the irony of this master improviser hating jazz but loving opera is this character quirk he can't get rid of because he should, by all rights, like jazz, but how does he see the world through this fatalistic sense of fucked up sentimentality and murdering yeah. the people he loves? It's a lot to read. Um, and for those reasons, I think it is a good good. I think that the first good is there in terms of technical quality, in terms of uh, writing depth, a lot of that credit, I'm sure, goes to Highsmith, but also some of the choices Miguel himself has made. And I do think it's pretty watchable and returnable, too, even uh, given the length. I think this movie's a good good. I'm not going to argue with you there. Um, I really did enjoy watching it. It just felt a little heavy in the middle, maybe. It's fair. It could have been tighter. There's a lot of meandering around, and then there's something maybe frustrating about the fact that you kind of know in the last hour of this two-hour and 19-minute movie that... He's going to fucking get away with it. Right. Like everything kind of like falls together in such a he's going to get away with it kind of way that the ending's not really that surprising. That's fair. That's fair. Still sad though. Mm, for sure. Did, but did Tom do, really, Because really does want... he get away with it? I mean, well, in the sa- on a, I mean on, on a legal level, yes. 
on a personal level, I think he thinks he's on that ship scot-free with a man that he might finally be able to have a happy relationship is with. And, oops, there's the one person who can identify me. I have to jilt her again and then murder this guy. Yeah. And he then in 1977, he's going to be Dennis Hopper fucking around. <laughs> do you want to move and talk about uh, the American friend? Let's do it. Do you have a I'm not going to... I'm not going to attempt that German. We leave the German to me. 1977, Vim Vendors. Who a would... Vim Vendors classic. Did you watch the Criterion 4K reproduction of this movie? I think I just watched a Criterion Blu-ray. I don't know if it was 4K. Okay, the one I watched on Prime. I don't have a 4K television, so it didn't look any different to right. me. But <laughs> yeah, no, it according to the like 30-second title card at the beginning it was approved by vim vendors and remastered from the original printing it was a beautiful looking movie um yeah especially for the especially from the time that it was filmed um so vim vendors is of course goes on to make paris texas wings of desire and then a lot of documentaries uh what buena vista social club and salt of the earth in the in the last 20 years and this movie as a Ripley movie is really interesting because Dennis Hopper, who plays Tom Ripley does not resemble the Tom Ripley archetype. And the movie is not set in the same sort of, you know, gorgeous places that Ripley's game. The novel is now this is like the filth. This is like the back alleys. This is like the apartment building that hasn't yet been torn to the ground. Immediate conversation, French connection vibes. For sure. Um, And he's like living in this sort of broke down palace filled with sort of the the cast off uh, set from Big. You know, he's got the pool table and the Coke machine and the record player. In Hamburg, which is a working class industrial town. Meine Damen und Herren, wir kommen zu dem Höhepunkt der Auktion. 62.000 Mark, 62.000 Mark, 62.000 Mark, niemand mehr. Was ist das her? Das möchte ich doch wissen, das Erste. Herr Zimmermann. Ja, ja. I've heard of you. Ja, gut. And then the interesting story behind this is the first time that Patricia Highsmith watches this movie, she has the reaction of, well, that's not the book, like, and that's not Tom Ripley, so what the hell, man? And Vim was so disappointed, and then she watched it to her credit. I really don't think, Stephen King certainly didn't do this with The Fucking Shining. (laughs) She watched (laughs) it again uh, not too long later and wrote him and was like, you know what? I actually see that you made it your own. Like, there's some really interesting things that Hopper is doing that actually is the character. Um, But yeah, on the... From the jump, like first watch, first brush, the big kind of storyline with this one is like, oh, it's one of these Ripley movies, but also not. For sure. I mean, this one is not as tightly wound, certainly, as the talented Mr. Ripley. It's definitely more, I don't even know how to describe its genre. Right. It's somewhere between thriller and just sort of hard-hitting, gritty realism, yeah, drama. Yeah. 
so the plot why don't i give the plot bones of ripley's game the story because that's what will apply in some ways to both this one and the next one uh older ripley 40s 50s is uh an criminal in the art world with connections to art forgers and living a life of relative solitude and then contacts comes in contact with this guy uh named jonathan who in this movie is played by bruno gans and he's slighted by this person which is the same thing that happens in a minor way such a minor way it's obvious though he refuses to shake his hands and he's like, because he's got a bad reputation. Yeah. And then a plot point that is so hard to suspend my disbelief around. Then a old gangster colleague of Ripley shows up and is like, I want to kill a guy. You want to do it? And Tom Ripley's like, no, I don't do that. But this guy just insulted me. Maybe try him. Because <laughs> he also, in both movies, has leukemia. Um, and then so the seemingly normal guy falls into this weird web of like we'll give you fifty thousand dollars if you fly to another european city and murder this gangster so you can have some money to send you know pay for your funeral and send your family on to your next thing which is just a bizarre plot point to me it really it's like, very like strange like fatalist strangers on a train kind of thing sure that's true yeah she is interested in that idea of like when strangers murder each other true <laughs> that's true but um, I understand what you're saying that it is sort of contrived that he engages in this activity and then like is sort of pulled in a second time because the yeah. guy who sets him up is just like it might be one but it might be two people that you have to whack. And I think this movie's approach to the difficulty of suspending that disbelief is interesting which is that it really does not worry about explaining why someone would do that because it doesn't make any sense anyway. And it just dives deep on the character. And I think that Bruno Gans, the performance uh, in this movie is really interesting. I mean, the, the, the ways in which you meet them, Bruno Gans is a picture framer with a son. And in refusing to shake Ripley's hand, your first impression of him is that you know, he's like an upstanding fellow who has heard not upstanding things about this other guy. But then they're like strangely just like a different kind of shadow version of Tom and Dickie are tied together over their differences and like what one is capable of and what the other is not. Absolutely. And what would have to occur in your personal life for you to behave the same way that Tom Ripley does without fear of consequence? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I do think that this one... I almost think think that Dennis Hopper plays the Tom Ripley character more like the Dickie Greenleaf character, like in this one, where he sort of has these weird devices that he sort of goes through. Like he'll record his voice or he'll take these like proto selfies of himself right? in a way that like speaks to a vanity that I don't think he has in talented Mr. Ripley, but Dickie Greenleaf certainly would. I mean, he's the kind of person who invites himself up on stage during someone else's concert and is like, I'm singing now. You're right. Yeah. It's an interesting vision of what happens to 
the 20 year old sociopath who scarred himself, lost the people he loved and then had all the money in the world. Ripley's game, the Malkovich one kind of presupposes that he becomes the archetypical John Malkovich character, like icy, tasteful, lonely. This one is more like lonely and has totally embraced his own idiosyncrasies, whatever they are. Well, this was also a deeply disappointed Tom Ripley too, because there's those great scenes with the artist who's doing the forgeries. Yeah. And he'll be like, there's that moment where he's like, you did the blue wrong in the previous painting. Like, and he, the artist is sort of impressed that he noticed this because it's almost right. like his sly declaration of like, I am the forger. Like, I'm not painting these famous. These are not famous paintings. These are mine. Yeah. And Tom Ripley has to admit because he always basically tells the truth. No, like, I didn't notice it. Like, my art, my art expert did like the framer noticed it uh but he's not going to be around very long so like don't worry about it but like knock it off and that's what attracts him to jonathan is that we're instead of it being like oh there's the wilder more interesting person that i'd like to be it's like oh there's the simple perceptive craftsman who has what i never can you know he has all these compliments for his shop he has all these compliments for like oh i wish i had a had a trade says a rich man who just like swindles everyone he meets. Yeah. And it's also the a person he bonds with because of the fact that they're both living like there's no tomorrow. That's true. And they don't necessarily care. And there's also, he's sort of like a, a mentor figure to Jonathan. Ripley is in this one to be like, this is how you live. Like you don't give a fuck because you're going to die any second. And he sort of takes him under his wing and is so baffling about it that, like, even when people ask him about it, he's not supposed to tell them that he's working with Tom Ripley. Jonathan has no choice but to be like, yeah, Tom was there? And <laughs> we killed two guys, not one? And I don't know. We threw them out the door. A very interesting bit of trivia is the, the Forgers played by Nicholas Ray, director of Rebel Without a Cause. Samuel oh, yeah. Fuller is one of the gangsters in this movie. That's Peter great. Lil- yeah, yeah. Peter Lilienthal, who is, I believe, the um, gallery owner who employs Jonathan's wife, is also a German director of like 40 different movies. It's wow. all of these directors that you... I mean, that's too much of a coincidence for Vim Benders not to have been casting directors in the movie but there is an interesting underlying thing there of like this is a movie full of people who are directing and cajoling other people into like how they see the world yeah for sure and this movie is sort of meditative in that like hey look at this thing like really fast and like the way that talented mr ripley is like painting these like large huge landscape portraits this one's like more interested in these these still lifes of Things like that awesome little like trolley car that's strung from the second rung of the bunk bed, like down to the desk that he keeps running into, I thought was like a brilliant sort of macro object that he has to interact with. I think that the escalators and all the public transportations are shot so fucking well. It's And like just interacting with transit, like this is not Alfred Hitchcock, everything's sort of like proper and like clean like this is dirty and there's something nice about that it's quintessentially 70s in that way yes uh but it also makes for a great contrast with the Mangella movie like it's not vistas this is modernity closing in on every level uh, uh something i would add to your list of great um 
kind of industrial shots is that crane that looks like it's oh, going to bash into his window at any well, point. I also, think, I also think it's so interesting how the 1970s of like these couple cities, like Paris, Hamburg, and wherever else they go. Uh, there's another German. Go, go up to Munich. They okay. all kind of look like Midwestern cities of like the 2010s. Of mm. There's like cranes everywhere and sort of these interesting but sort of bland looking buildings are going up. And this movie also has sort of an interesting visual relationship with the Twin Towers. If you notice, they're like in right. every New York shot, but like not as anything specific. It's just sort of these like towering statues to like show you like what era you're living in. And there's something fascinating. It almost looks like sort of a pre kind of like Blade Runner with them in the background or something. Right, but with real cities, yeah. Yeah, with real cities. And there's something kind of, I don't know, it felt very contemporary to me in that way where it's like getting lost in all this sort of transit and commercial stuff where like the world goes up around you. Yeah, and like you're visiting the city, but like you did get lost and you never actually made it to the iconography. Right. And though they don't have cell phones in this movie, there are just so many phones everywhere that are like ringing in an annoying way right. that it's like you can't get away from everybody being connected. It's very impression in that way. It's true. It's true. Let's talk about the how the plot unfolds. Sure. Do you find this to be a watchable movie? Do you find it to make sense? Yes, sometimes in a way that some of the other ones don't, I think. Okay. It's definitely a little bit more obscure, maybe visually, but I thought it was so interesting to be like, instead of in Ripley's game, which we'll get to in a second, having Doug Ray Scott, like, just go up to him with the fucking aquarium and just shoot him. Like, (laughs) this sort of, the the character in this one, the first-time killer, Jonathan, like, has to sort of work his nerve up to do it so he creates this chase scene that, like, only exists for him. Yeah, that's true. It's really interesting how he's chasing a person who doesn't know they're being chased and ultimately, like, fucks it up so... Like, there's no worse time to shoot someone than when you're both on an upwards escalator because then you either have to run past the body or you have to run at twice the normal speed to get down. That's fascinating. I didn't think about that. I thought that was incredible that he just like didn't have the nerve to do it. And that felt more realistic almost than him being like, oh, the kids are there. And 30 seconds later, he's like ready to kill him. And speaking of the eerie alienating sense of staging, then you see him run away and you view it all through the surveillance cameras. Right. He's like like caught. And then, yeah, you think, well, this guy's fucked. And then like no one is watching. That's the thing. If you pull back from the screens, nobody is watching. And that's a line that's like really good. And I think in Ripley's game, when it sort of speaks to who Tom Ripley becomes, is a person who behaves as if no one is watching. Beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. Um, yeah. If I, have a, if I have problems with the movie, I just think it's the action, especially like on the train, especially when you get to the violence at the end. It's almost... I don't know. Do you think it's supposed to be almost comedic at the end when Gans and Hopper team up? I don't think so. Um, okay. You know, I mean, I'm sh- it's certainly more artful in Talented Mr. Ripley and Ripley's Game, but I thought this movie like didn't show a ton of the actual violence in a smart way. 
like you see people falling off of stuff and you like sometimes they'll get pulled into a room and like the horrible thing happens and they never show like any gross medical shit which is great um i don't know i think this movie has good workarounds for how goofy the violence would look otherwise some great goons in this movie really good goons great looking uh, 70s goons and i really just love the hairstyles of both bruno gans and uh dennis hopper that like when they've been in a fight it was slicked back at the start but it's fucking everywhere now it's like it's in true. their eyes and they like can't seem to like like put it back in a way that doesn't look like they just killed a person that's so funny i love the end the the end when is he great. suddenly you know something like psychologically clicks in Jonathan of like I've teamed up with this guy and even though I'm absolutely not going to get out of this like I need to separate myself from him and the shot that vendors tease up of uh Hopper out the back window is like uh, Leatherface and Chainsaw Massacre Texas Chainsaw Massacre of him just yeah, kind of like good. having a conniption behind the car of like no you can't get out of here now yeah um, Well, that's ultimately, I think, like the Tom Ripley paradox is that what he needs to fully succeed in his plan is a loyalty to him from these other people that they're not willing to give. Mm. You know, he needs that ride off the beach to like truly get away with all these murders, but like he doesn't get it. True. You know, and like he can't be with, there's no way that, uh, commandant uh norrington would have given him being like i'm actually a murderer like you need to just forgive me and we can be together but this woman thinks i'm somebody else like he can't it's a bridge too far he can't get that loyalty from them which is ultimately like the that's the the grecian tragedy of of tom ripley for sure it sounds like you really like this movie do you want to rate it i thought this movie was incredible I'm so glad. I watched this movie on a train, on a commuter train between New Jersey and New York, uh, which was an incredible time to watch it. <laughs> like in the evening with the New York City skyline behind me in the last Ooh. 20 minutes or so. It was great. Um, it was so moody. And like I was so, not to spoil the next movie, but I was like sort of disappointed with Ripley's game and to sort of bounce off of that into being like, this is that that story, but so much better. Uh, I, I I mean, and I also just have a penchant for movies from like the 1970s that kind of play with not sets, but like the sets that we've built around us. And seeing these European cities in that lived-in kind of way was was very good, a very enjoyable experience. I think a good good. Wow, I sort of I assumed that you would go good bad out of the kind of alarmingly slow burning of it all and i kind of was too because again i just don't think the movie like makes a lot of sense but at the same time like the performances are so good and i think if you go back and like look think about the ways that jonathan and ripley interact it's just like any of the other good versions of these adaptations it's like the characters have magnetism push and repelling an attraction inside each other that supersede whatever story beats you might be concerned about. I'll come with you. I think it's a good good. I mean, we didn't even talk about the the Lisa Chrysler 
wife character who like doesn't believe him for a second that he like got medical funding. Yeah. It's not you know, and knows that he's like killing people almost immediately. Right. Which is so interesting. Oh, and the relationship with the little with the son too, the little boy, he's always putting his nose squishing his nose on the car windows because he like can't quite get there with his parents, and then he witnesses all the violence between them. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Visual storytelling again is really good. The first thing you see in this movie of like we're talking about the world of fucking like art forgery and then you see that jonathan is walking with his son in the raincoat and you're like oh this is strange he is the way that he is because of his relationship with his son and then he dies alone in a car (laughs) yeah he completely falls apart which is what you do when you're friends with tom ripley i really like the ending to that last line where it's kind of like how i picture like cute and goofy old men to die well, he has this moment where it's like, it's getting very dark, and then he's dead. And it's, yeah. that's incredible. Moving on to Ripley's Game, 2002. Ripley's game. So this is directed by uh, Liliana Cavani, who I wasn't familiar with her work, but reading on her, kind of groundbreaking the position that she had in the 70s way of Italian filmmakers alongside Bertolucci. Uh, not a lot of women in these waves of mid to late 20th century european filmmakers she's her name didn't really cross the atlantic but she has some notable films for people interested in international cinema like the night porter and the berlin affair and she also interesting pairing with highsmith is very interested in transgressive like sex and thrills and in storytelling and i wonder in some ways if i can you know tip my hand a little much like john malkovich was she like too obvious of a fit for this story that's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, it takes a lot to buy into this movie initially, I think, not maybe because of the director. Like, we, there's nothing really about the, I don't think, visual style of this movie that's inaccessible or anything. Um, no. I just think that John Malkovich, yeah, he's a little too on the nose. It's like, John so Malkovich looks like him. a con man. <laughs> yeah. And he's not that good looking like at this point in his career whereas i think like dennis hopper's like kind of got that like still looks like a like a boy charm thing even at 40 and then like matt damon's of course like the the boy next door kind of goodwill hunting vibes about him uh you think malkovich Malkovich, like in his early 50s like (laughs) oh and that voice, too. But I was watching this movie with my dad. He was like, no matter what John Malkovich says, like, it's sinister. After 20 years in exile. I've always wanted to be the man behind the reputation. Comes the return. I've heard so many things. Who knows? Some of them may even be true. Of the notorious Mr. Ripley. Mr. Ripley, the lord of the manor himself. What a pleasant surprise. You beautiful man. His face has changed. I lack conscience. And when I was young, that troubled me. It no longer does. But his talent remains the same. I've got a problem. Why was he here? Turn over and I'll tell you. He wants me to kill someone. Why? Because I can. Yeah, like even his threats too are just like too clever by half where he's just like, if you do whatever or if you don't do whatever guy or don't tell me the thing, like I'm going to run over you, your face with a tractor for the remainder of the day. (laughs) It's like, 
Like, okay. Did you think of that five years ago, Tom? <laughs> yeah, he's been sitting on that one like since the beginning of the movie. He's like, I hope I get to threaten someone. Yeah, I don't think he's bad. It's all just a little easy. Um, except you know for... Who's... Go ahead. He's not bad, but I tell you who is bad uh, is his counterpart, his unworthy opponent, uh, Doug Ray Scott, as the Jonathan character who... I mean, clearly, like, doesn't have the mustache of someone like uh, Bruno Gantz. I'm sure that Doug Ray Scott is a very nice man. I hate to be mean, but he he, he is the main thing stopping this movie from being any good. He needs to stay in his Mission Impossible 2 villain lane and not be in these, like, Europe-to-U.S. import, like, pseudo-adult thrillers. He is the opposite of both Runa Gans and the American Friend in that everything Doug Ray Scott does is really like exterior and logical. Like when he, you know, is feeling a certain thing, he has to explicate it like exactly. And that makes a movie where the plot is already hard to believe like doubly bad. And then also he's just no match for Tom Ripley. And so you don't understand what Ripley sees in this very kind of boring, like pathetic man who's almost like <laughs> more pathetic because he is like handsome. Yeah. He's almost a little too handsome for this role, I think. Uh, and he doesn't have the hair length to have it fall on his face when he murders someone. <laughs> That's a big problem for you. That's a big problem for me. But yeah, I just, ultimately don't think he has like the strongest script to work with. He kind of has that line that's reminiscent of the Daniel day Lewis thing from the explainer we used to do on be real to tell people how we rated movies where he's like, give me my, leave me my name. He has that moment in Doug Ray Scott has this moment in this movie where he's like, I can't even look at my son. Yes. Oh my God. Most acting we call that. Yeah. I mean, and I, this goes back to like a, a you know a, a hobby horse line of mine, but like in a movie where the main thing is the subtext, don't yell the subtext. I hate when they yell the subtext. I understand the subtext. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah, there's that terrible scene where he's just like, "Money, money! I have some money, and money is what is important, isn't it?" And Lena Headey just slaps him across the face as if to be like, "You have to stop doing this bit of acting in my presence." Please do. Yes. And I think that the the insult, whereas it was sort of clever and funny in American Friend, this one is like, he really goes for. It's like, hey, you know that guy I invited to that party that is clearly here? That guy sucks. <laughs> like, did I tell you that that guy sucks? And then he's like there, and it's not even that awkward of a moment. He's like, oh, you're here. Great. And then he just like wanders off with that tray of coffee at the behest of Lena Hetty or Cersei from Game of Thrones. Right. Well, I don't think I'm repeating myself here, but this is a movie that like looks at the plot beats of the Ripley's game story and is like, well, we need to do more to make this seem logical. So we need to make the insult seem more cutting. And we need to have like more scenes between Jonathan and Sarah where like, oh, they need money or that weird scene where it's like her job's not good because her boss is like a perv that like never comes to anything, but is only there to be like, well, 
Ripley's game makes no sense. So put this in so like to ramp up the stakes. Like you can't get around the fact that Ripley's game makes no sense. The only option is to go deeper, not make something fundamentally illogical seem piecemeal logical. It's dumb. Yeah, this movie has that weird logic of like everyone in the room is like, well, I don't agree with ripley's philosophy on life but he's the rich one here so i guess we're gonna do what he says yeah and that's a weird thing too like the he lives in this garish house much like he did uh dennis hopper did in the american friend but it's a little bit more it's between Mingella and american friends yeah it's not quite one or the other and it's just kind of like leaves no taste there are some good sequences, though, where he, like, gets that harpsichord uh, refurbished. Sure. Where it's like, oh, that's a cool thing. But it's almost like the movie is looking for scenes where John Malkovich can take a harpsichord to get, like, restrung and, like, give them an unreasonable timeline in which to restring it. Yeah. The good Malkovich. You have six days. It's a <laughs> gift. The good Malkovich comes not when he's being menacing, which is too easy. It's on the tip of his tongue the whole time. But the really interesting, I want to give this movie a little bit of credit. Uh, The moments of his brain literally not connecting with human emotion because of his sociopathic tendencies. So you have the great thing where like after they've, you know, killed the guys together and are on the run. Uh, and they're pushing the car into the river. Malkovich steps outside and orders the Chinese peonies. Like, I love those. What colors do you have? And that's like the part where you get... He can multitask for sure. Yes. And even the way in the end, he delivers the line, why did you do that? After the not very well film, or not, in- it's filmed fine. It's just not interesting. The Doug Ray Scott sacrifice. The delivery of why did you do that is is a nice line. But all the ambiguities yeah, but, lost. But similar to the audience reactions, too, of like, why <laughs> did he do that? The ending of the book is interesting because you don't know if he intended to take the, Jonathan intended to take the bullet or not, and Tom is never sure. Oh, and so, then, but he, in the book, does, like, jump in front of a bullet. Yeah, but we didn't... It doesn't up, end with his little... VW bug not going into the water and him dying behind the wheel. No, that's a vendor's call. Interesting call, right? Yeah, very Vimmy. But then in the book, Ripley runs across Sarah like weeks later and is unsure whether she's taken the money or not. And she spits at him then and he determines actually she did take the money because, you know, this was for something as creepy as it was. Gotta take the money. Much more interesting ending than this like half-witted guy jumped in front of a bullet and then I tried to give his wife a stack of bills and she was pretty upset because he just died. (laughs) Yeah. He earned this. What did you think of the totally like spectrum casting of instead of like a slick French guy casting Ray Winstone as as the guy that comes to town with the murder proposition? I didn't think, I thought the weak, the weakest acting. You fuck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the weakest acting in in american friend probably was the french guy i appreciated that winstone you know is constantly doing the no holds bar ray winstone thing but it just matched up with this movie's like the casting is too neat the winding thriller is too straightforward i liked watching him but it's not a it's not great 
Yeah. I mean, this is clearly like the movie you do after that breakout role in Sexy Beast, where he yeah. plays the same character. Right. Um, and then, of course, he reprises it in The Departed, which is fine, too. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's such a weird... I don't know what quite to make of Ray Winstone. Like, he's terrible in that, I mean, otherwise terrible Indiana Jones movie. Um, yeah. He's in a lot of, like, bad stuff. Like, he was in that animated uh, Beowulf that Robert yep. Zemeckis did. Yeah, he's the bad guy in Aronofsky's Noah. Although oh, that's an awful movie. My read on that movie is that God was the bad guy, but that's just me. I mean, that may be true. Um, God, look at all these Snow White and the Huntsman. Classic. It makes London so much Boulevard, sense that he's in that movie. <laughs> Edge of Darkness. Oh, my. You fucking bastard. You fucking bastard. <laughs> there it is. That's oh, that's incredible. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know, man. This movie, I never really had that moment where it's like more than Malkovich playing his greatest hits and an otherwise anonymous European cast assembled around him. It's fine. It's like a C to a C plus, but especially watched alongside these other movies, especially thinking about the Ripley character, thinking about the kind of people who intermingle with the Ripley character. It doesn't offer anything new or interesting. It's bad, bad for me. Did you know that Roger Ebert said that this is one of the best movies ever made? Did he say that? Indeed, he did. It's on his best movies of all time list. Rogers. Didn't he see The American Friend? I don't know. Probably. A, he saw everything. Yeah, he did see everything. Um, you know, Raj has his picadillos, just like the rest of us. This movie, yeah, it's not very good. Uh, I'll give it a good bad. I don't think there's like anything that like offensive about the production of it. It's perfectly competent. It's fine. But it's not entertaining to watch. So, good bad. Okay, fair enough. Well... This has been an hour and 15 minutes of chatting about your favorite pop culture sociopath, Tom Ripley. Uh, Noah, you feel settled or unsettled at this point? About Tom? Still think he's probably, like, not great. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a... Probably wouldn't loan him, like, a money or a boat. Um, wouldn't ask him to retrieve a loved one from a faraway beach. No. No house-sitting for Tom Ripley. Uh but if you find yourself in a position where you need to murder at least one or maybe two other people, uh, he's a good ally to have for that second one. Yeah, if he's not going to do it himself, like maybe a waiter brought his food too slowly and he'll right. volunteer them for the job. He's a really good sort of like Ving Rhames character where he's like, he's just what? up for whatever <laughs> in the in the Mission Impossible series, going back to Doug Ray Scott's claim, okay. other claim to fame. I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah, he's always showing up in that third act uh, just to kick some ass and sure. not ask too many questions. That's right. And take proto selfies. That was so interesting with the the co- the the automatic. Uh, what do you call those? Polaroids. Yeah, yeah. He, that's Hopper pretty interesting is with the so Polaroids. Intensely watchable, and the fact that he didn't do any giant Dennis Hopper things made him all the more like, "What are you doing? What is this?" Yeah. I mean, he kind of goes for it a little bit where he's just, like, recording his own voice. Yeah. Saying the only thing to fear is fear itself. And then he just, like, bursts onto his own balcony. All right. 
We got to get out of here. Thanks These for the play- movies. I enjoyed they- them. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, Sometimes we pick some real dogs. What do you mean? Like uh, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith? That's exactly what I mean. Okay, yeah. I'm really hyped that you liked The American Friend. Yeah, cool. I'm into it. Maybe I'll go check out some other Vim Vendors uh, movies. Joints. Yeah, go on a, Vim go Vendor on joints. Bender. On a vendor bender. All right. On That's that, we great. have to leave. Thanks to the Playlist <laughs> Podcast Network for hosting us. Thanks to Tom Ripley for his unstoppable shenanigans and Highsmith for offer, authoring them. And thanks to you, buddy, for chatting it up. Do you think I'm your Tom Ripley? That doesn't make any sense, but I'll see you on the... Uh, the Amalfi Coast all the same. And see you for our end of year spectacular. Until then.